really key spot that I'll never overlook or never skip past is like a, a grassy a, j- a grassy area adjacent to a feeding area. Hey everybody, welcome to the Hoyt Bow Hunting Podcast. I'm your host, Danny Ferris, and today I have Jared Mills and Josh Sparks from Midwest Whitetail on the phone with me, and we're going to be talking a little bit about shed hunting. It is March 22nd, and that's hot and heavy on our minds right now, in addition to turkey hunting, right, boys? <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. It's been a busy month up until now looking for antlers. Well, cool. How are you guys doing? How's uh, Can can you see bare dirt to look for antlers yet? We're there in Iowa, or both of you from Iowa? Yep. We're both in Iowa. It's been a long time coming. <clears throat> this winter has been long, especially long, and uh, I'd say we're just about two weeks into finally being able to see bare dirt and really find a lot of antlers. So it's, uh, we've kind of crammed it all into these last couple of weeks when we could finally get out and do some walking. Yeah. Well, right now, uh, like I was telling you right before we jumped on here, I'm in, I'm in, uh, Eastern Colorado and we are buried in snow. You're not going to be looking for, for antlers for (laughs) at least another week or two until this stuff melts off. But I know that that's a concern out there. So hunting for sheds, for us western boys is a little bit different than hunting for sheds for you guys out in the midwest and you know specifically guys that hunt whitetail sheds um both of them are huge you know what i mean um here in the west in colorado and a lot of other western states they've actually uh started incorporating shed hunting seasons and establishing times where we can't access public ground and it's specifically because there were so many guys that were going out there and they felt like we're putting pressure on uh when on animals that were in their winter grounds and sometimes uh in pretty rough shape that this time of year animals coming out of um uh out of heavy winters man you don't want to put too much stress on them um especially if they're in areas where they're migratory and they condense into smaller areas where they winter or whatever. So in the West, there's a lot of places that we can't even access public ground until April 1st, um, specifically for establishing some sort of shed hunting season. You guys, man, uh, you know, a lot of times for whitetail hunters, you are, you are really searching for the sheds from the same animals year after year after year on the same pieces of property. Is that right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. That's, that's most, most often the case. Um, but even to draw a comparison to what you were just talking about, I mentioned this year was such a tough winter and we kind of employed that same mindset to some of our properties where, you know, we knew we had deep snow, a lot of ice, a deer were in pretty, pretty rough shape coming, trying to get through this tough winter. And right. we pretty much stayed off it for that reason. Normally we'll, we'll still get out a little early, look for some sheds on top of the snow. And this year we just didn't do it. We just wanted them to not be stressed and just kind of held off on the shed hunting until that snow melted away and the food sources became more readily available for the deer. And they're just, you know, in a better shape to be pushing them around. And then a couple of times we did get out, we we're just a little more strategic on sections of the, of the properties we walked rather than, pushing them out of the whole thing so you know it's kind of a similar situation here to what you're what you were referring to yeah you know i i think that it's a good idea um and that's really cool that you're considering that and taking that into consideration before you head out um because in places where it's not mandated you still should consider it you know if you can't if you can't see bare dirt yet and you know that those animals are are looking skinny and looking rough, man, you know, just be careful about how you go about it. Um, yeah, it's all relative. You know, it's, it, it depends what the area you're at and what type of conditions a deer are used to. It, it, there's just no question the area we're specifically in. It was a lot harder winter than normal. This was, these are pretty adverse conditions compared to what our whitetail herd is, is normally used to. Right, yeah. right. And I would even say, you know, compared to where Jared's at, about three hours away from the farm that I'm on right now, you know, honestly, it was cold, but it wasn't anywhere to the same level of intense as far as winter goes. Because back home where Jared's at, we got snow and we had an ice storm come through 
and then we got more snow on top of that. But where I'm at here, I mean, we had some snow, but it's pretty dang close to the Missouri border. So you're talking about as far south of Iowa as you could get. Right. Um, you know, I would say around here, you know, it's probably been almost a month that you could have been walking. So again, just the contrast for sure. Um, yeah. Yeah. And there's, evaluating. there's a trade-off, Danny, I don't know about your area, but there's a, there's a trade-off in waiting. It's not easy to wait because a lot of the areas where you hunt, uh, the squirrels are so bad, especially mm-hmm. on winters where, you know, those tines are sticking up through the snow. I mean, that, I would say 60 to 70% of the antlers that I found so far this year have been pretty chewed up. So there is a trade-off in waiting waiting too long too. <laughs> yeah yeah and same here in Colorado. Or, well in the west it's it's a race <laughs> you know yeah, what i mean when they start hitting the ground man it yeah. is a it's a race to get a hold of them and and for a lot of people you know i i can't say that i've ever gotten into it like some guys have some guys have built careers off of shed hunting mm-hmm. you know wow. like that guy shed crazy have you ever seen him on instagram he's got mm-hmm. an He's, he started, he's really funny, but, um, he started his entire following just based on shed hunting and it's a huge monster following now. You know what I mean? Um, and it's for a lot of guys, they've really turned it into a science and, and something that they enjoy almost just as much as actually hunting, you know? Yeah. I gotcha. I, you know, I've always been, there's been some situations where I was out and I've already got a heavy pack on or something like that, like backcountry style hunts. I will never leave one leg, you know, yeah. unless it's unless I have to by law. That sucker is coming out with me <laughs> no matter what. You know yeah. what I mean? And and we value, we treasure those things. You know, I'm sure that you guys have your favorite one to, ones displayed in your house somewhere you know, set aside from the general pile. You know, no matter what reason you hunt for, whether it's for the camaraderie or for the meat or for anything, I think we all still have this obsession with antlers. And so I think that's what really leads to the popularity of shed hunting is it's, it's cool that you, you pursue these animals all year long, you know, hunting during the hunting season but to be able to find the antlers from them and actually get to hold them and admire them and, and stuff like that i mean we just all have this obsession with antlers no matter what the reason you actually hunt for and um <clears throat> that's one of my favorite parts about doing it is just just getting out and actually finding them and getting them in your hand and getting to see them up close yeah one so, thing i was getting, go ahead oh go 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 right ahead josh i was gonna say one thing that i would ask you know you had mentioned it's just it's a foreign world to me a to have to have a competition of going to shed hunt that's very interesting but two you know you mentioned wintering ranges um you know one of my favorite things about shed hunting is just really using it to gear up for next hunting season you know i feel like there's so much that we can learn when we're shed hunting um at least in the whitetail woods you know that that sounds like is that is it as beneficial you know when you're out west because you can't necessarily hunt where they're going to be wintering. I guess I don't really know how Western season set up, but it well, seems like that would be a pretty big contrast. Th- it it kind of depends upon what part of the West that you're in and whether you're in a place where there's really a migration or not. Okay. You know what I mean? So like if you were hunting, you know, high country, um, uh, mule deer or something like that, there's no, there's really no telling where that deer is going to end up to winter. You know yep. what I mean? And where he spends his summers, it's not like if you've got a, let's say that you have a 200 acre farm in the Midwest, you know, that somewhere on that farm, if that is that buck's home territory, you're probably going to find his shed somewhere on that farm. You know what I mean? Some of these migration herds move uh, along. I, I hate to state exactly how far that they move, but I would say, you know, 20, 30 miles all the way up to a hundred wow. miles. You know, to where they go to their wintering ground. So, on in contrast to that, in in some other areas that are lower and maybe don't have quite as heavy a winter conditions, or the the deer don't migrate to go you know long distances to go to where they uh, to where they winter. So, like here in eastern Colorado, for instance, a lot of times 
you know, those deer aren't moving off a long ways. And those properties where you see them in the fall are the same places where you're probably going to find their, their shed antlers. So it just, it just depends upon elevation and how heavy the winters are. Um, So I would say it, for the most part, is a little bit different than what you're doing out there in the Midwest. You're really using shed hunting as a tool for, you know, for, for monitoring your deer and aging your deer and, and things like that. Why don't you, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what shed hunting does for you guys and how it, how you incorporate it into your hunting and how it's a benefit to you. So, yeah, for me and Josh and I may just have different outlooks on this, but for me, I use shed hunting. In my experience, I haven't been able to draw as many parallels or strategy from finding a specific deer's antler or where I find it. It's more for me, it's an opportunity to really get out and do more in-depth scouting. So while I'm walking through all these areas that I, that I stay out of during the rest of the year, basically, that's my time to look and see different trail systems, different pinch points, different potential stand locations. I mean, and honestly, that, that kind of results in me not being as good of a shed hunter as some guys because I'm looking around in, in other areas where the sheds aren't. But um, for me, that's my favorite part about shed hunting is when Josh says we can learn so much by doing that time, that time of year. For me, that's just being out there and actually putting putting boots on the ground and learning more about a specific deer's area or property, something like that. So it's not the actual finding of the shed that's beneficial to me. It's the act of shed hunting and, and what it allows me to do on a property. Yeah, no, I would 100% agree with that. And especially, you know, like I keep mentioning, where I'm at right now is very far away from where I grew up around Jared. This farm specifically, you know, I was just before this call talking about this heavy 10, you know, we've basically been able to figure out he beds within 50 to 100 yards in the exact same spot all summer and all winter. And, you know, as far as like next year, I'm assuming this will be a target buck on the farm. That information, I think, will help us be able to get on them really early in the year. Um, you know, through finding sheds and then more importantly, trail cameras being able to kind of follow as he settles into that fall range. Um, you know, A, it's just really helpful because we know he's still alive. But two, just putting together that years of history, you know, you guys mentioned it's awesome to find the antlers, but two, it's just really cool to see that he follows that pattern. Um, and without those antlers being there, we'd really have no clue, you know, if that was actually the case. So, you know, it's like Jared said, I mean, it might not be as influential as you'd like to think it was, you know, you find an antler and that's where you're going to kill them the next year. Yeah. Um, but they definitely have noticed with specific deer that like, you know, the one that you're not going to be able to see on the video, but this buck in particular, I think based on all that, we'll be able to get on him in the first week, two weeks of October because he's done it for three years in a row now. Right. And I mean, like where these sheds were found, we're within, it was like 45 yards probably of where they were the year before. Um, so it's just pretty cool. I mean, individual personalities of deer is a really big thing. I think that goes into that. Um, but generally speaking, like Jared said, I mean, it's the areas we're not going into where these antlers are. You're never going to find us touching it in the summer, not touching it during the fall. It's really only going to be that springtime. So, right. So how often do you guys in your experience, um, are you, are you able to build a history on a, on a deer year after year by finding sheds on the same farms oftentimes where you're hunting them in the fall? Yeah, this, again, this place is a pretty special piece of dirt. It's pretty big. Um, so I don't know if that's exactly a, a good comparison to what the average guy and I was going to, you know, be drawing right. from. Um, right. I would say the biggest influence on this place is going to be what food sources agriculturally were available. You know, I have noticed that we'll find antlers in different spots, in different bedding areas based on where food or more importantly, what kind of food was left. Um, you know, again, on this farm, different buck, same scenario. So we found three, three years of sheds off of him. 
two years of beans, we found it in one bedding area, the year of corn found it in the different one. And so what we kind of hypothesized was that, you know, he's bedding in different locations based on that available food source. Um, but this place, yeah, I mean, you're talking some deer we've had four or five years, the landowner has of individual right. bucks, which is pretty dang cool. Cause like you go back to the whole being able to see the growth. Um, but you know, growing up, it definitely wasn't like that for me. I was hunting a smaller piece and didn't have a lot of food during the late season. And that would be the big thing too, is like, you can't find antlers where they're not. And if there's no food on your farm, probably not going to have as many deer as you might've had during the fall. Um, so no, that, that makes a lot of sense. And that leads to another question. Um, just basically around the, you know, the, the science of finding shed antlers, especially in the Midwest where you guys are, what do you, what do you look for? I mean, um, I've thought about trying to get one of my dogs to where they could, you know, be a good shed dog and haven't really worked on one of them hard enough to do that. But when you're out walking and looking for sheds, what, what are you looking for? Like you're talking about crop rotations and things like that. Is there a certain crop that you are definitely any bedding area near that particular crop you're going to you're going to look for? And let's say that there that crops aren't necessarily a factor there. Where are you looking? So some of it depends on the winter conditions that we've had. You know, this year is a little bit different than other years, but in, in real hard winters where you have snow, the king is going to be some type of standing food that's up above that snow's level. So like standing corn or standing soybeans. On years where we don't have a ton of cover and deer can still get through other other food sources such as brassicas or some greenery, you know, that opens up a lot more options. The deer are a little more spread out, feeding on different in different places as opposed to being a lot more concentrated. Uh, during a tough winter like this mm-hmm. um, for me over the years i've found more more sheds in general in bedding areas than i have in feeding areas you know i think they spend just just from a number standpoint they spend more hours out of the day that time of year in their bedding area than they do in the feeding area and so for that reason i try to focus on the best bedding areas and that a lot of times that's southern southern facing slopes where that sun is hitting them and warming them up Uh, the other really key spot that i'll never overlook or never skip past is like a a grassy a a grassy area adjacent to a feeding area i think a lot of times deer will go out and feed at night and throughout the night they'll just kind of lay down in those little grassy areas and get back up feed a little bit lay back down those grassy areas so that's a that's a really hot spot especially in the midwest to look for those little grassy waterways or just uh something Mm -hmm. adjacent to a feeding area so um those are like the areas we like to start to get a little more specific as far as what we look for um i just had this conversation the other day with some other guys and when i'm looking a couple things one i always have to remind myself to slow down i think we all miss a lot of antlers every year for one reason or another but for me i'm always like okay i have two hours where i need to get back and do something and i try to cover as much ground as possible well i really think i find less sheds that way i think if you're really slow and methodical about covering an area really well you'll find more antlers so constantly remind yourself to slow down and the other thing be specific about what to look for so when you know if i'm walking the timber for example there's a lot of jagged lines straight and jagged lines in a timber setting a lot of times i'm looking for a curve um like a curve of a beam whether it's tines up or tines down a lot of times you can still see the curve of that beam and always carrying binoculars with me that every time i see something that has a little curve on it and it has it's the right color i'm pulling up in glass and i've and I spot a, sh- a lot of sheds from a good distance away because my, i'm trying to train my eyes to look for that type of stuff um, rather than just looking for something that stands out in color because you have, you know, darker antlers that blend in pretty good to a timber setting. Um, look for something that's curved and that seems to, to stand out a lot more uh, that you can pick out and, and at least glass and see if it's a shed antler. So, you know, starting wide, starting in the right areas and then being specific about what you're looking for seems to be a good formula. Yep. Yep. Not. I really couldn't say anything different on that. I mean, I guess just building off of the whole winter thing, you know, this year specifically with the hard winter. And I, again, I wouldn't even say down here was necessarily a tough winter. We just had more snow than usual. Right. Um, 
found a lot more sheds closer to food, you know, and like last year sheds were way more spread out. We really didn't have any snow cover and there was browse available. You know, there was plenty of food throughout most of the year in all areas of the farm. Um, you know, whether that be been clover, leftover brassicas, we had corn last year. Um, but building off of what he said about being more specific, you know, one thing that I'll do is try to gauge when I'm going to go based on weather, you know, whether that be a cloudy, rainy day, uh, opposed to a sunny day, yeah. that's going to make a huge difference. And then building off of the whole, you know, trying to train your eye, it might sound kind of silly, but one thing that we try, I, I mean, I don't always do it, but one thing that's helped is taking an antler. And once we just start walking, just randomly throwing it in whatever habitat that we're in, mm-hmm. because once you pick it up first time, then you can pick it up easier the second time and so on and so forth. And then really is just going with as many guys you can at one time, yeah. you know, going slow. My, my biggest thing that's helped me find more and just putting away my phone, to be honest with you. Yeah. Because when I'm bouncing, you think that's funny, don't you, Jared? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's, it sounds simple, but it really has because, you know, once you're focused on one thing, um, you know, it, it's more productive. Right. Um, so, you know, south facing slopes, like he said, you know, I've had, a, like he, Jared already touched on, but the most luck that I have is like those grassy areas he mentioned. Um, you know, closer to food, that's going to always be productive. So, um, I'm trying to think of anything else specifically. I mean, I feel like we've talked about it a thousand times, but. Yeah, well, it, I, um, I think train, training your eyes is very important. You know, yeah. like, the, like the throwing the antler. I think it's like, you know, a, a comparison would be like mushroom hunting. A lot of guys out around mushroom hunting, once you start finding them, you tend to find a lot just because your eyes are <clears throat> are, are zeroed in on what to look for. I think shed hunting's uh, very similar. Yeah. Right. So you you mentioned something about sunny days versus cloudy and you know maybe overcast or rainy days. Yep. Tell me which one's better. Cloudy for sure. I mean, when you start thinking about trying to find an antler, imagine now in that landscape with a sunny day, you've got shadows everywhere from all the branches. Um, I mean, yeah, don't get me wrong. I'm still going to go shed hunting on a sunny day. Don't tell Jared. But, you know, right. you're definitely going right. to find, to me, more antlers. And I think you have a better chance of finding older antlers too. I, I tend to find a lot of old antlers on cloudy days, um, just because, you know, they pop a lot better. There's a lot less to compete for as far as looking for those curves and the beams, the points and the tines, like Jay was talking about. Um, yeah, Yeah. I mean, 100% I'd always choose. Yeah. yeah, I would always choose a cloudy day. Like the rain too is another factor. If you can go after a rain or during a rain, you know, it's amazing if you just look at the ground level cover, especially again in a timber setting, which is pretty common out here. All the leaves, how much higher they sit when they're really dry. They curl up and they sit higher and they cover up more of the antler. But after a fresh rain, all that stuff is matted down. And sometimes you get kind of that glistening off of a shed antler that shines, um, just stuff that your eyes can pick off. So it does make a big difference. If, if you can pick and choose which days to get out, you know, definitely cloudy or rainy days are, are way better in my opinion. Plus that yeah. that moisture makes all of the brows and all of the all of the foliage darker in color automatically, yep. and the soil right. is darker in color. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't, to tell you the god honest truth, I'd never really considered that before until you guys just said that. Um, that's something that I'm going to pay close attention to out here. Um, yeah, when I do go out, um, there's been a lot of times where uh, looking for um, mule deer and elk antlers especially if there's any place a canyon or anything like that where i can be on the north side and glassing over onto the south side uh, mm-hmm. and i'll just sit down and i'll glass and you know i hadn't like i said i hadn't really thought about that but um that would make them a whole lot easier to spot um yep. so the other question i have for you as it pertains to the whitetail and and especially shed hunting in the midwest um the food sources are there any differences in food sources that you concentrate on like if you know that this place was beans this year are you more likely to search the head to the bedding areas there first uh as opposed to a place that had a cornfield in it this year or 
and and let's say that you know it's not standing corn uh, let's say that it's been cut and it's corn stubble like most fields are unless you left it standing on purpose for the deer which mm -hmm. i would say the majority of people don't have that you know what right. i mean um right. you're looking at either corn stubble or uh potentially some some bean stubble or uh wheat or some uh, alfalfa what are some of the, the other popular ones are you going to head to the beans first over those other ones or is there any difference in your in your opinion for me i'm going to choose corn over beans are you 100 of the time down here um again i just more Hopefully there's waste grain if you're not having the standing corn or like you mentioned, leaving it specifically for the animals. Um, right. I, I don't know. I just, I've always noticed that corn seems to be more of a draw than beans. Now, again, if you're talking about, is there snow on the ground? I think that's a really big dependent, you know, right. if there's standing beans over corn that's been harvested mm -hmm. and there's snow on the ground, probably going to go to the bedding areas around the beans personally okay. but for me the other motivational factor is what buck's going to be in that area right I mean, that's where i'm going first is a spot that i think that i can find a target buck right um but i guess i would probably say corn i don't know what you think jared yeah i think it's a tough question for me to answer you know i, I still go back to just it depends on the winter conditions because depending on how that is that's going to really drive what those deer want to eat you know if you try to level the playing field i'd probably give a slight advantage over uh, to a pick cornfield over a pick bean field mm -hmm. but yeah, again it, it really depends on the weather the temperature when it warms up deer really prefer the green so like a winter wheat field or alfalfa field or something that time of year can be way hotter than a corn or bean field oh yeah um, but if there's snow on the ground it's cold and they need those those carbs you know you, you're probably going to find some around the cornfield so it, i think it's very dependent I, I don't think there's a blanket answer and probably what's a little bit different here than it is out in your area danny would be a lot of this kind of ag country has a little bit of all those options so the deer don't necessarily have to relocate to find a different food option they're still living in the center in the same general area so you're you're, you're still kind of shedding the same spot it's just the the fields may be rotated yep. you know from one field over to the next one or something but it's not like they gotta go five miles to find the next bean field or corn field yeah. right right, right. yeah depending upon where you're at in Correct. areas yeah. with a lot of ag like you in southern iowa that's certainly true but in some other areas it might not be yeah uh, exactly so uh one other question that i that i had was you know you mentioned earlier jared that you find more of your sheds in bedding areas um probably than in feeding areas and i've we've all certainly seen the farmers that end up with a shed through their tractor tire and things like right. that that are out in the fields right, uh, yeah. and i've always you know i guess here kind of anecdotally and I'm, I'm i'm not as scientific as you guys are about this at all but i always looked for places where a buck could knock it off on a tree or uh at fence crossings any trail that goes a fence across the fence where they have to jump and there's that landing i found them along those fence crossings a lot of times um do you feel like you guys find more in those bedding areas because they do knock them off on trees more often than not or do you think that uh you're just as likely to find them out in the middle of the wide open in the middle of a a, a winter wheat field or something like that um or in one of the cut corn fields or cut bean fields as opposed to the waterways and the grass areas adjacent to them or the bedding cover next to them. Yeah, I guess I would say, and I'm kind of just basing this off of where I found them and how I'm guessing they fell off. Yeah, I haven't actually personally seen a deer shed a antler in person, in person before, but with regards to you talking about like the creek crossings and fence crossings, I have found a lot of antlers that way. <clears throat> so I think that natural kind of jolt will sometimes get those antlers off. I don't know in a timbered setting if it's because they're knocking. I, my guess would be no. My guess would be they just don't hit 
their rack that often on trees or, you know, they're so used to being in that. They're usually not running or something like that. It's just kind of a, you know, a slow movement. And I, I think the reason I find so many, so many antlers in the bedding area is just, again, like I mentioned earlier, just a time, just a, a simple time reason. They spend more time there than anywhere else. Right. And granted these, these, you can, you can kind of interchange a little bit because that time of year most guys, at least in the Midwest and farm country, there's food not too terribly far away. And so they don't have to bed very far away either from the food. Um, right. So a lot of times that travel is pretty minimal and, and it's, and that whole area is a little bit interchangeable between bedding and food. It's not a, there's not a huge distance in between the two. So I would say, I would say it's not because they're knocking antlers off on trees. It's just because they spend a lot of time there. Yeah, that would be my take on it. Well, and I, you know, I guess what brought that question up is I have seen a few videos of deer shedding their antlers. I've never seen it actually happen myself before, mm -hmm. um, but the ones that I have watched of deer of deer actually shedding their antlers, they're either standing there and it's almost like they they get something that's annoying them and they all of a sudden shake their head real hard and one of them falls mm -hmm. off, or yeah. um, I've seen videos of them uh, mule deer especially when they've been spooked and they have they're running and you know how mule deer staunt they bounce instead of run like whitetail and bam you know the antler will shed when they hit the ground on one of those i've also seen a couple on fence crossings and then i've also found two different sheds um that were in a tree like wow. in a cedar tree like they've like they were rubbing you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Um, and I would, I just wondered whether you guys often saw that where maybe they get that annoyance. I don't know whether it starts itching them or whether it starts feeling a little loose. I didn't know whether they would frequently go ahead and, and rub on a tree real quick to try and take one off or not, or yeah. scratch that itch. I didn't know whether they did or not. Um, I think that's a pretty good assumption. I think that I would agree with that that they i think when shed antlers are ready to shed they're ready to shed like i think there's not a lot that can force it if it's not ready right but i think when they get that feeling or something bothers them or it starts to hang a little bit you know they they try to get it off and like i said i've never seen it personally i just missed it one time i was filming a field full of deer and a buck uh, a one antler buck had come out and i stopped filming it for a second to film another deer and i looked back and he had lost a sight and i don't know how it how it happened I could see the antler laying there and blood running down the, the side of his head. But, um, I, I think, you know, I think they do feel something like you were alluding to and, and probably shake it or, you know, maybe knock it off if, if they can't shake it off. Right. Um, but in general, I think the antlers have to be really close to just falling off on their own for them to actually knock it off. I think it's just when it's ready and when it's time, it's time. Well, um, so one of the other questions that I had is, you know, like you were just showing me, Josh, before the show started, you've got this heavy 10 that you called him and, um, you, you, we don't have video on this podcast, but I have video, you know, as I'm talking to these guys here and Josh was able to show me the jump that this deer took. And, and really when you're looking at the deer live on the hoof, it's hard to tell if they made a substantial jump in mass or mm -hmm. how much bigger a pedicle is from one year to the next. And are there times where finding those sheds helps you to confirm things like age um, and, and things like that? Because as soon as Josh showed me this shed just a minute ago, I was thinking, man, that has to be the jump between either three and four years old or four and five years old, you know, because there was a substantial difference. But really, if you looked at them from a distance, you wouldn't realize it was that big of a distance or uh, of a difference yeah. from year to year. Um, yeah, no, I it was blown away. I mean, there's no other way to put it. I mean, when we were getting pictures of them all summer, it was just the exact same frame, shorter tines. I mean, really the only thing that we thought was cool, he split his G2. You know, he technically became an 11 pointer and never once was, it was like the jump and that he had made mass wise. I mean, he was heavy last year. That's obviously why I got his name, but like now it's probably the most dense 
big pedicled antler I've ever seen. Um, and I don't know, just full of character, but you know, building off that topic of not being able to necessarily judge a jump, you know, this deer is cool, but we just released today's show, um, on Novus whitetail. I think Jared's a better one to answer or to talk about a deer that made a jump that he didn't really realize. Um, they've got a buck on their river farm. They go buck called Dak and they saw him multiple times on the hoof even right. and had no idea how big of a jump that deer made. Until you found the shed? Yeah, we found the shed on uh, Friday, I guess, or sometime late last week. And, uh, yeah, it took me five or ten seconds to actually realize what deer it was. I just I couldn't think of a deer that big on the, on the property. And uh, it's, just, it's just an example, and especially deer like what Josh was talking about with the heavy 10. Trail cameras do not do massive deer justice. Yeah, that's right. that's probably the biggest thing that trail cameras don't do just as mass, but just sometimes size in general. And it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning. It's so cool just to get your hands on these antlers and, and truly realize it's it's no different than shooting a buck you're after and getting up to him and be like, man, he's bigger than I thought. You know, I've killed a number of bucks like that too. There's just something about holding those antlers and truly getting to appreciate their size and you know everything, time like mass, beam length, it all just kinds of kind of is the benefit of shed hunting and finding them and putting your hands on them. So, um, yeah, I've been, I've been fooled multiple times by a trail camera or a physical encounter and then actually picking that antler up and it's bigger than what you think. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that I've always really paid attention to when I was, all of us, seems like we pretend to be biologists and we know how old that deer is just by one glance at his body or something like that you know mm-hmm. and and me personally i found that there's a lot of times where i think i'm wrong i think that it's fairly easy to identify a year and a half old buck or a two and a half old buck three and a half to you know five and a half six and a half can be hard you know, yeah. there's, they, they have different shaped faces and different shaped chests and, you know, things like that. Um, and then anything over five years old from, you know, from there on out, it's incredibly difficult, in my opinion, to tell exactly how old that deer is without, you know, actually sending the jawbone in. You know what yeah. I mean? But one of the things that I felt like never really lies, if you can get, you know, a couple of sheds off of an animal is the size of the pedicle. You know, um, the mass of the antler is one thing, but the size of the actual pedicle itself and whether that thing is smaller or larger, it, it, to me, is a pretty good indicator of kind of how mature that deer is. Do you guys agree? Do finding sheds ever help you confirm the age class that you think that the deer is i think there is a general consensus yes i I have seen exceptions for sure so it's not bulletproof okay but a lot of times you can pick up an antler and, and reasonably with you know, 80 plus percent certainty. Like this is, looks like a three-year-old antler deer off a three-year-old buck, you know, based on the size of the the pedicle, like you were talking about. Um, I have seen deer that it's just proof that not all deer get big, no matter how many years they have on them. I mean, I've, I've killed deer like that. I found sheds to deer like that, that just don't put on anything year to year to year. And and you'd pick it up and think it was a two or three year old deer. Yet you have all this documented history. That's 100% him, but it's just a small antler. It doesn't have any mass, pedicle, small, everything like that. So uh, to answer your question, in my experience, it's not bulletproof, but I think it's a, it's a good place to, make assumptions and i mean we've all been wrong i'm sure and yeah. trying to judge a deer's age but i look at like who cares i mean if, if you're wanting to manage for age that's great just use your best guess like sure. if you're off a year we've all been wrong it's fine to be wrong but just use your best guess and go with what you think and you know if, if you're wrong and shoot them a year too soon or something that it's not that big of a deal but um i think that's uh it's a good strategy to employ to at least get close on deer's age by finding that shit <clears throat> right yeah i i think would it be safe to say that an older deer can have a pretty small pedicle but it's pretty tough for a two and a half year old to have a freaking 
three inch yeah. wide yes. pedal. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? Um, and yeah. you know, I've, I've seen quite a few older deer that didn't, didn't necessarily have good mass or tine length, but their pedicle was, you know, mm-hmm. as big around as a, you know, small saucer. And it's like, okay, that's, yeah. that's an older deer. You know, I just can't, I, yeah. I haven't seen it go that way. You, most of the, you know, younger deer that I've ever seen have had a pretty narrow pedicle and a taller one, you know, yep. yeah. um, that doesn't sit as flat to their head. It seems like, um, yeah. yeah. But well, that's a, uh, there's a deer. Um, sorry, uh, there's a deer on this ahead. farm that we last year thought in 2019 he was three, and it was very interesting to see that his pedicle mass was much smaller than the actual mass of his antler, and right. so we actually picked up the same side uh, this year. And again, that's why this farm is very unique, and you know, I've never seen it in other places that I've had the opportunity to hunt. But similar to the, the heavy ten we found this antler to his buck called pop jr. It was 35, 40 yards away from where Drake and I had found the side the year before. I mean, it was just, again, shedding almost the exact same spot, but this year that pedicle started to match up a little bit better with the mass on the antler, you know, and again, to me, definitely confirmed that we thought he was three last year for this year. And I'm kind of like you mentioned, I, you know, on the hoofs, especially, Four and five, if we don't have history with them, I think it's about impossible to tell, at least for me. I mean, one of the biggest bodied deer I've ever seen on the hoof was, in my mind, I was 99% sure he was four years old. Had I not had trail cameras of him for three years, I'd have thought he was overly mature, you know. Seven Um, years old, eight years old. Yeah. 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 Um, So, it was just interesting you said that because I feel the exact same way. Yeah. Yeah. well, I've I've had some pretty interesting uh, uh, discussions with buddies who will see a you know will have a few trail cam photos and they are certain that this deer is a three and a half year old deer. You know what I mean? Or an outfitter that says you know they have a age class deal on their on their property and and they're judging off of a couple of trail cam photos. And in my opinion, my humble, uneducated opinion. It can be extremely difficult to age a deer off of those photographs yeah, in the same way absolutely. that it's hard to tell exactly what you're looking at. You can tell the you know basic configuration of the rack, but sometimes you're shocked by mm-hmm. either how much larger or how much smaller, smaller. it is when you yep. actually find the, the shed. You know what I mean? Um, yep. And those, those trail camera photos can, can lie to us sometimes. Oh, yeah. And Absolutely. As can seeing one on the hoof. I've uh, I have grossly misjudged deer on the hoof uh, several different times in my career, more than I like to talk about. Um, so one of the other things that I've really learned from picking up sheds um, was I, I've once again I've had some guys tell me that oh that's not the same deer because his kicker is on the other side. And how often is it that you find that a deer will have some config, some, you know, maybe a split G2 or mm-hmm. something like that. One, one of the deer that I have a whitetail that I have a shed off of that we named wishbone because of his split G2 that looked like a wishbone that you were going to break was on the right hand side. And it was a big, deep split. And he had it when he was the, the first year that we found him and since that time he's never grown that split on the same side again he's split off on his left side he he's done things similar but it often goes back and forth from antler to antler can you guys speak to you know to that a little bit and some of the some of the things that the that finding sheds teach you about that yeah to me it's just fascinating you know that they they can do that it's it's I've seen it a number of times and I, who knows what the re actual reason is for it, but it's, it definitely happens and it can definitely make it tougher to try to identify a deer. Um, in my experience, there are certain things that really tend to stay the same and, and, um, you know, not fool you as often, I guess. What, what are those defining characteristics? Because like, just like we're talking about, I have had a couple of buddies 
that have had four years worth of sheds laid out in front of me. And there's one of those sheds where I'm like, man, that one doesn't look right to me. It doesn't look like it, but they're convinced that this is the, this, these are all the same deer. What are the defining characteristics that typically don't change it? Make it easy for you to identify that deer year after year. For me, it's got to be beam shape. That'd be my number one. And this uh, is just based on my experience. I'm sure there's, you know, there, there's probably anomalies for in different situations. But for me, I look at um, number one is probably how and where the tines come off the antler, come off the beam. Okay. So I'll start at the brow tine, and and you know they, there's a lot of room between the burrs and the G2s, and a lot of times that where the G1 or the brow comes off is almost in the same spot every time and it'll come off at the same angle. And, you know, that's, that's usually a giveaway for me. And second, the beam, like Josh mentioned, usually keeps the same general shape. It may put on an inch or two or a few, um, as they grow older and get more mass and stuff like that. But the general shape remains the same, but, um, I would, you know, and, and stuff can happen too with velvet injuries and stuff like that can, can throw you off. But I would say number one for in my experience would be just where, where the tines come off the beam. And I start with the brow and kind of work my way off, you know, as the, the tines that grow kind of in that order, the brows, the G2s, the G3s, um, usually tend to follow a very similar pattern and, and, and the location and the angle they come off the main beam. So, so you, so you're safe. You're safer to judge whether that's the same animal or not based off of that beam shape and the configuration of the primary tines that come off of it than you are paying attention to kickers and things like that because they can they can come and go and they can switch sides and things like that. Is, is that what I'm hearing? Yeah, that's that's that'd be my uh, consensus and what I've seen over the years. A lot of times, you're looking at a combination of things too. You're, if you're, especially if you're in a situation like you just mentioned, like could this be the same deer? You switch split sides, you know, and then right. you start looking at the other stuff and be like, yeah, it's got to be. Look, look how this brow comes off the main beam. So a lot of times, a combination of things to to make yeah. sure you're confident in that. But um, I, I do think there's some things that that don't tend to lie as far as that goes. Yeah, right. I mean, so like just take the the deer. That that the landowner, his name's Lee Abraham, killed on this farm this year. Last year was a mainframe eight-pointer with two big inside threes that technically made him a 10. Mm-hmm. Well, this year he lost both of those and then split both of his threes. I mean, if you're going to build it off of the characteristics of what the tines had last year to this year, you know, really doesn't even resemble the same animal. Right. However, if you put those antlers right in front of, you know, when we harvested them, the beam length or just the beam shape, the way, like Jared said, where the tines come off of, all of that was pretty much the exact same, just a larger version. Right. Um, you know, another thing that I've noticed is when you start talking about trash around the bases right, or little points off of the bases, um, especially down here, they tend to keep those. Those little points just get a lot bigger. There's not necessarily a bunch of, you know, change there. Right. Um, but, you know, that, that deer would be a great example of, you know, if you're going to say that, well, this deer has split threes this year. Last year, you know, he had inside points. Right. 100% the same deer. Nothing right. like the same qualities as far as the points. Right. Which, which was good because he put on 44 inches. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah. he was a world-class animal. I mean, wow, it is incredible. So, yeah, that's um, that's exactly what I'm talking about. There's 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 been arguments that have been had in hunting camps as to whether this is the same deer or not, <laughs> based on those kickers and inside points and things like that. And man, they just change. They, they yeah. it's one of the things that makes finding the shed so dang fascinating. You know? Yeah. Um, yep. So, have either of you ever played around with dogs at all? I want to. Like you, you said, to. I want to, but... I've seen them at work before. I, I've yeah. never had one, or um, but I, I've seen them at work before, and it's it's pretty impressive, just their ability. I'm, I'm always amazed at the dog's tracking capabilities, whether it's shed antlers or blood tracking or even a bird dog, you know, something like that. It's amazing how we, we can't even appreciate how good those those animals' noses are. Yeah. Um, so it's impressive to watch them work. I think it'd be cool to have one. 
it would be i i I feel guilty because I've got a little lab that would uh, her drive for playing any kind of game with a ball or anything is is just crazy. She'll go until she'll drop dead, you know. Yeah. I mean? um, and if I had spent more time with her and and gotten her started on on shed hunting, oh, I guarantee you, like I would have. If she had the same interest in finding sheds as she does in finding that ball, I'd have every shed off of every place that I went in. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? So uh, it's it's crazy. And I know that they sell that they sell shed dogs um, that are basically uh, I'm not going to say pedigreed for shed hunting, but that are specifically for shed hunting now. And, right. Um, yeah, I was just curious whether you guys had had any experience playing around with them or not. Um, I know that yeah. there's there's people that say you can definitely teach any of your your current dogs how to do it if you just get them into playing with a shed antler as their toy. Part of what we're always worried me about that is having them start to chew up my sheds. You know what I mean? <laughs> like I would if I turn around. And all of a sudden and found her chewing on like my favorite shed that's up on the mantle over here i'd be oh yeah myself, but from what i from what i've seen you know I, I got to experience where it was one of those shed dog trainers he had brought a couple of his young <clears throat> young dogs out to a property and and let them work but from what i've seen and heard in regards to your point i think it all comes down to the training regimen i think i think there's you have to be very strict in teaching them that it's a job you know shedding is a job you don't chew it's they're not chew toys right you know it's it's that's what they're being trained to do it's work for them right um so i think it all just comes down to that training regimen and and being very diligent as far as that goes well it sounds to me like you two are definitely guys that would benefit from having one of those one day <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, make my job easier yeah i it it definitely would so um i i guess the last question is uh i know that in different parts of the country it seems like the you know deer drop it start dropping antlers at different times of the year it's crazy when i see a deer in december for instance um, you know, when you guys are late season hunting, um, that has already shed his antlers. Um, and it seems to me, I, for whatever reason, like I've seen it more often, maybe it's because more people have game cameras. Uh, maybe it's because more people are, are filming than they used, there used to be, but it seems like I see more deer like in early December that are already dropping antlers these days than i used to mm -hmm. do you yeah. guys notice anything like that and when when do you really feel like you know they start and when it's safe to say that all of them are done in your uh, area you know, yeah it's, and i would say again this is gonna be for me year to year um you know this year you're talking about deer that shed in december i actually picked up an antler yesterday to a buck that's five and a half on this farm and he was my number one late season target mm -hmm. but he disappeared it was like middle of second shotgun season and we had seen him at the end of november he looked pretty worn down so you, you know did he die what happened did he shed early and we had a shed buck come by us that evening that we went i only hunted at one time and I pretty much just chalked it up to he's either dead or he shed. We found a shed antler 60 yards from the, the stand that we were hunting right. yesterday. Right. And so that confirms that, you know, he was still in that same area. That antler, I'm just guessing, popped off in December. Very similar to what I'm sure Jared's going to share with you on Merino. Um, but on this farm, I would say that normally, like two years ago, 2019, you know, we had a pretty large majority of bucks holding into February. Yeah. I would say that we were 90% shed on this farm this year before season was closed. I mean, it was a very severe drop off right in the beginning of January, the number of bucks that were on the farm. What do you, and then, what do you think uh, are the factors that play into that? I know you're not a biologist, but. Yeah. I mean, I don't you know. Have you ever heard anything? I mean, to me, I guess would be just how stressful or rut did an individual buck have? How worn down is he? Um, 
you know, how much, how much energy is he going to be putting into getting his body back to where it needs to be rather than, I guess I don't really know. I wish yeah. I had a good answer for that. Yeah. Cause it didn't really, cause again, it's like, I, I don't feel like I can comfortably say this place had nearly as bad of a winter yeah. as the farms that Jared was hunting. You know, it would have made more sense to me that Jared's deer would have shed way early compared to this place. But you definitely do see differences from year to year as far yeah. as when yeah. they all seem to be dropping. I, I would say so. That'd be an yeah. interesting question for us to ask somebody who who really knows a biologist when we have them on here one of these days. Yeah. I'm gonna have to note it. Yeah, for me, I think it's an interesting observation you had, Danny, too, because I was literally just thinking about this the other day. And in general, it seems like there's been an overall shift towards earlier shedding for whatever reason. And I don't. It could be the same thing that you brought up. I'm I'm paying attention to it more just monitoring more something i don't know but it does seem like i've 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 had more deer shed by the beginning of january or mid-january than i ever remember you know a decade ago right um with that being said though i have seen a lot of instances where a certain buck will shed within a three or four day window three to five day window every single year it's just kind of when they shed their antlers and no matter hard winter easy winter that's just when they shed their antlers i've seen multiple examples of that too so it's hard to say i i I think that's under normal conditions relatively normal conditions with regards to the deer's health yeah i think if a deer gets sick or overly run down i think that's just kind of a an exception to that they're they're likely going to shed early we had a our main target on the farm josh alluded to it we've been hunting him since 2017 and uh, I, I truly think he shed between December 5th and December 10th, which is crazy early. Oh, yeah. We, we just picked up his antler the other day. It's the first time we've ever found, found a shed from this deer, actually. We've been hunting him since 2017. So I don't know if he sheds early every year, um, just usually ends up somewhere living somewhere else during that time frame or what. But, you know, it was very interesting. What do you think about what but think about last year when you were hunting him i mean you hunted him till what last encounter would have been january 6th or something like that later so yeah no matter what he there's something weird as to why he shed so early this year yeah but yeah it's weird i i uh i've noticed the same thing as you with regards to overall it seems to be trending towards a little bit early shedding time a couple of years ago i watched a video and i can't remember can't recall who it was right off top of my head but they they shot a deer and i think it was it was in the first week of december and it might even been like december 1st or something like that um and it was a big old buck um and they they shot him and he went taken off through the trees and they went over to recover him and they walk up and they are excited i mean they're they're excited because this has been a buck that they've been after it's a it's a giant and literally they walk up to him and grab both antlers and go to swing his head up to show the camera and one of them just goes bam and i was i mean you could tell the guy wanted to climb up in his tree stand and jump out of it at first um but it was like what the heck man it's like december 1st why are we you know why is that happening and i started paying attention to it from there and it's just it seems like that seems to be a trend to me um mm-hmm. totally anecdotal i don't know whether it actually is or not but i was curious whether you guys noticed something similar and jared definitely does um so there might be something to it it's global warming <laughs> that seems to be a, october's <laughs> the new november and deer shed in january what a world of <laughs> well guys um there was one thing that I should have asked you at the beginning of the podcast that I didn't get a chance to. So I've been friends with Bill Winky um, for a very long time. And um, we, we've done a couple of podcasts with him recently. Both of you are on that Midwest Whitetail team. Um, talk a little bit just, just about Midwest Whitetail, how you guys got involved, how long you've been there. And, you know, maybe about this last season, any, anything exciting you've got coming up. Yeah. So, um, you know, Josh and myself have been around for a while and have, have had a lot of fun working together and, you know, trying to continue to grow Midwest Whitetail over the years. And uh, I've been involved since Bill hired me 
straight out of college back in 2010, actually. So I've, I've been involved with the production of Middle Whitetail. This will be my 12th year. Oh, wow. Um, doing this. So I've been around for a while and Josh actually started working for me back in 2015, just kind of on the side. And you could, I guess you could call him kind of my personal intern when I was doing some, some side work for Bill. And, uh, he obviously grew into a, a, a one of our top producer roles at Middle Whitetail and does a lot of our, our main production work. So, uh, you know, we have fun with it. It's, a uh, it, it takes a lot more than just a love for honey. You really got to love the, the, documenting aspect the videography aspect and josh and i both have a a pretty good passion for that and um i think that's what allows us to keep going because it's, it's, a, it's a job that's easy to get burned out on too it's a lot different than what people see you know on the shows there's a lot of work behind the scenes and um being passionate about creating the best product possible really fuels that mm-hmm. and so we're excited we're looking forward to the to the future um it seems like there's always a lot of opportunities coming up and this time of year we're spending a lot of time figuring out which ones to chase down you know doing things like like podcasts and and stuff like that to really grow the brand and we have some exciting stuff you know in the works and uh, just looking forward to seeing what we can do um to Last year was a really good year to build off of. We, as a team, we had a really strong year, especially a strong finish to the year. And we're looking forward to just keeping that rolling. Yeah. Yeah. No, but it's a, it's a privilege to continue it. That's for dang sure. Um, like Jared said, 27 or 2015, started working for him, dropped out of school, college in 2017 when Jared and Bill offered me a job, which, you know, at the time, family wasn't crazy about All right but it's worked out and uh you know I've, I've got the best job in the world you know to get to do something that you love every single day it is a little dangerous when you start playing with your passion of hunting as a oh, career yeah. or a job but like jared said the the creativity that this job allows us you know for example we'll be get to go turkey hunting i think yeah. we're leaving for nebraska tomorrow and, uh, you know, that's something we're looking forward to bringing to the Midwest Whitetail audience. We've always filmed our turkey hunts. We've just really never done anything with them. Right. And so that's something we'll be, be doing. But, you know, these guys have some big deer to go after next year. You know, it's going to be hard to top 2020. I mean, right. everybody was able to punch a tag. It was the perfect storm for a guy in my position to have, you know, plenty of hunts to edit. And then uh, chasing November season six will be out in August. So, it's, well, uh, I've got to I I, I got to tell you, you know, as somebody who's been involved in um, the television side of hunting for quite some time, longer than I want to admit now, um, I, my hats off to you because just going out there and hunting all day long, and uh, you know all the extra gear, all the extra time, all the extra thought that goes into filming, but coming back after a day or four days or five days and coming in every night and having to edit a hunt together and get that thing out for the next day is Mm -hmm. something that most people have no idea, no idea how difficult that would be. And how tiring. And it's funny that you said that, Jared, that this is a job that would be easy to burn out on. And that's why. Because you, yeah. by the by the time you guys, when you guys start hunting, you know, in our, maybe October, like really hunting a lot. And by the time you're done with deer season, you've got to just be completely and totally mentally and physically gassed. Yeah, yeah I always... Going through the rut. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. A lot of my friends always say, man, so awesome. You get to hunt for a living. And again, I don't want this to come off as that I'm complaining at all. Right. Because it's really, it's really easy that when you get to that burnout point to be like, well, I could be doing this job or that job, or I could be waiting all year for that one week of vacation. But you know, it's, I always just say, we don't hunt for a living. We just sleep less for a living. That's it. That's the only difference between anything yeah um yeah it i think the epitome for me was when jared killed that kentucky buck this year and they were in a a a low wi-fi area for lack of a better term and when we got the hunt i finally got it it was like 2 a.m on monday morning Mm -hmm. i think it would have been and then we had it up you know edited and ready to go by 8 a.m 
you know, so yeah. that's semi-live. It's, you know, for me growing up, you know, for me, it was kind of a weird ride because I grew up watching Lewis Whitetail. We didn't have yeah. television in my house. And when 2008 hit and I typed in free hunting TV and this came up, you know, I always appreciated and thought it was so cool. Like, oh, that just happened. And I get to watch it. Right. So now being on the flip side of that, it's, it's definitely a privilege. I mean, no, no matter how much or how, you know, tired we get, I think it's safe to say all of us are very grateful for everybody that watches the show, makes it possible, yeah. all the partners that we have. And, you know, just generally looking forward to doing it for the years to come. For well, sure. Considering considering how exhausting it has to be you guys do a terrific job everyone on that crew does a terrific job and like i said Appreciate my that. hats are off to you maybe the 25 year old danny would have been able to do it but <laughs> i don't I, I don't know that the old danny now would be able to do what you guys do so yeah. hats off well guys it's been great we're uh getting just over an hour here and i know that jared's got another phone call that he's got to jump on but thank you so much for joining us today thanks for the discussion and uh hope everybody enjoyed it and we will see you sometime down the trail everybody have thanks a good day. we appreciate it thank you, thank you.